This is Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore presentation of the Bradcast that was originally recorded on April 13th, 2022. We'll be back soon. If you are back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, would they get a fair shot at a hearing? Not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal. Well, we'd have to wait to see what, what happens. Yeah, I'll take that as a no, Senator McConnell. I hope you guys do too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from BradBlog.com. Thank you very much for joining us as we continue to fight like hell as we have for nearly 20 years now to protect what is left of your democracy. So why stop now? (laughs) Good point. Hi, Des. Hi. Conventional wisdom. You know what? I'm not a fan. If if the uh, 2016 election of Donald Trump in these United States should have taught us anything, it is that political experts and TV pundits and their conventional wisdom well ultimately they're just you know they're guessing based on history they don't actually know anything or at least as we begged you at the time in the run-up to the 2016 election don't listen to the conventional wisdom back when everyone was telling you oh trump could never really actually win an election to the presidency yeah fun times huh remember Mm mm-hmm So the conventionalism right now is that Democrats are going to take a shellacking this November and will probably lose majorities in both the House and the Senate. And that could be true. But in fact, nobody actually knows. Maybe conventional wisdom was fine in conventional times, but these are not those. Political scientist David Ferris will join us momentarily to discuss a bit of that, including his recent article at The Week headlined, Democrats could still win in November. No, really. We'll talk about uh, if that's possible 
what Dems would have to do in order to make it so, and maybe even his seemingly contradictorily contradictory follow-up headline uh, piece that was headlined "Countdown to Democrats Doomsday." <laughs> Well, I look forward to the figuring out how those two work together. Uh, but very quickly, uh, in other conventional wisdom that did not necessarily pan out, everyone, and I mean everyone, perhaps with the exception of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, everyone told us early on that Russia's massive and mighty military would overtake Ukraine in a matter of days after their February 24 invasion of Ukraine, and, and that NATO would likely have trouble unifying in response and could be in serious trouble of even existing. It might even collapse. Well, Russia did not overtake Ukraine in a matter of days, despite the conventional wisdom. NATO did unite against this existential threat to democracy and freedom. And today, it looks like NATO is likely to expand, not collapse, in direct opposition of what Russia has, has been gunning for in its attack on Ukraine in the first place. Conventional wisdom be damned. As the Financial Times reported... Uh, late last month, if the worst fears of Europe are realized and the conflict in Ukraine spreads across the continent to other neighbors of Russia, then Finland, Finland will be ready. It has supplies. At least six months of all major fuels and grains sit in strategic stockpiles, while pharmaceutical companies are obliged to have three to ten months worth of all imported drugs on hand. It has civilian defenses. All buildings above a certain size have to have their own bomb shelters. And the rest of the population can use underground car parks, ice rinks, and swimming pools which stand ready to be converted into evacuation centers. And it has fighters. Almost a third of the adult population of the Nordic country is a reservist, meaning Finland can draw on one of the biggest militaries relative to its size in Europe. Finland's EU minister told Financial Times, quote, we have prepared our society and have been training for this situation ever since the Second World War. After spending eight decades living first in the shadow of the Soviet Union and now Russia, the threat of war in Europe, quote, has not hit us as a surprise, she said. And now, with an 800-mile border with Russia, Finland appears ready to take the next step, along with neighboring Sweden, according to the prime ministers of both countries at a press conference on Wednesday. Finland and Sweden could both seek to join NATO in the coming weeks, warning Europe's security landscape has, quote, completely changed in the aftermath of Russia's onslaught in Ukraine. Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin said Wednesday that the Nordic country, which shares an 810-mile border with Russia, would decide on whether to join the U.S.-led military alliance, quote, within weeks, according to CNBC. Finnish lawmakers are expected to debate the pros and cons of joining the 30-member alliance upon returning from their Easter break. Speaking alongside her Swedish counterpart Magdalena Andersson at a joint news conference in Stockholm, Marin said that once Russia invaded its neighbor Ukraine, their, their decades of defensive neutrality immediately changed. 
everything changed when Russia invaded Ukraine. I think people's mindset in Finland, also in Sweden, changed and shifted uh, very dramatically because of Russia's actions. And this is very clear. And that uh, caused a uh, need for uh, process in Finland to have a discussion about our own security choices, also uh, discussion about NATO membership that we are having uh, right now. Uh, I won't give any uh, kind of timetable uh, when we will make our decisions, but I think it will happen uh, quite fast. Well, of course, uh, Russia is a next door neighbor, as I mentioned. We have a long border with Russia and we see how Russia acts now in Ukraine. There is a war in Europe that we wished uh, never happened, but it is uh, uh, unfortunately uh, atmosphere the situation that is uh, happening right now and of course we have to wonder what is the best way to secure that this wouldn't ever happen in Finland. That was the Finnish Prime Minister. Um, for her part Sweden's Prime Minister Anderson echoed her Finnish counterpart at the news conference saying there was quote no point in delaying analysis of whether it is right for Sweden to request NATO membership. This is a very important time in history she said. There is a before and after the 24th of February, when Russia attempted to take over Ukraine, the security landscape, she said, has completely changed. We have to really think through what is best for Sweden and our security and our peace in this new situation. And of course, what is happening and the discussion in Finland is important for us to follow. Therefore, we need to have a very close contact. Uh, but we have to have a process in Sweden to think this through. I think you really must analyze the new situation, do it very seriously, think about the consequences, the pros and cons of all uh, potential ways forward. And I think you have to be very serious in this work. Anderson said that lawmakers in Sweden, which does not share a border with Russia and has not actively fought a war in over 200 years, would discuss the prospect of NATO membership in the coming weeks. She pledged to keep Finland updated on Sweden's position and said it would be for each country to decide for itself. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has repeatedly said it is for Finland and Sweden to decide their own path. He has also said the door remains open for the alliance to welcome new members, as he reiterated again this week when asked about Finland joining NATO. The message from, uh, from NATO and from me is that it is for Finland to decide. Um, we will respect the decision regardless of uh, what the conclusion will be. But if Finland de de decides to apply for membership, I am confident that uh, NATO allies will warmly welcome them uh, and, uh, and uh, we can quite quickly make the, 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 the decision to, to have them as a member of uh, the alliance. Now, Russia has long warned against any future enlargement of NATO, reportedly accusing the alliance of being, quote, a tool geared towards confrontation, unquote. However, Russian Pre President Vladimir Putin's almost seven-week-old war in Ukraine has now resulted in the deployment of more troops on NATO's eastern flank and led to a sharp rise in public support for Finnish and Swedish membership in the alliance. There is no other way to have security guarantees than under NATO's deterrence and common defense as guaranteed by NATO Article 5, Finland's Prime, Min Prime Minister said on Wednesday.
The reference to the Alliance's Article 5 refers to the principle of collective defense. In short, Article 5 means an attack against one NATO member is considered to be an attack against all of the allies, which also means, by the way, that if Russia attacks, say, Poland or Finland, if they're a member of NATO, then the rest of NATO, including the U.S. and, yes, Sweden and Finland, who have been neutral for decades, if not centuries in Sweden's case, they would themselves be immediately at war. Finland's Marin said that given Russia is, a, is the country's next door neighbor, it was critically important for lawmakers to discuss the best way to ensure that the devastating crisis in Ukraine is something that never happens in Finland. She said we also need to be very frank about the consequences and the risks. There are both short term and more long term risks. These risks are there both if we apply and if we do not apply. So, uh, yeah, that would be a big change for Sweden and for Finland and for NATO and the world. But it defies what had been the conventional wisdom just about six weeks ago before Russia marched into Ukraine. And even for the last at least six years, especially during the Trump administration, when there was a question of whether NATO was going to be able to survive at all, with the former president siding with Russia against NATO in many cases, and serious questions were he to ever win a second term, whether he would simply pull the U.S. out of NATO entirely. It is those kinds of uh, very big stakes that are now on the table across the world and across this country as we head into the critical midterm elections. Not, unfortunately, with discussions of autocracy versus democracy, as we should be discussing, but with talk about, you know, whether teachers in public schools can discuss race and gender at all, whether books should be banned in public libraries and whether women will be prevented from having abortions. As is likely to be the case very soon, by the way, once the GOP's stolen and packed Supreme Court hands down their ruling in a few short weeks. That 6-3 to three Republican majority on the court is thanks to what happened the last time Republicans controlled the U.S. Senate. And it may happen again after this year's midterms, at least according to conventional wisdom, which I am not prepared to simply roll over and accept. We will see if my guest today, who uh, wrote a book titled Time for Democrats to Fight Dirty, we'll see if he's ready to roll over. David Ferris of Roosevelt University in Chicago joins us next to discuss his recent article headlined Democrats could still win in November. No, really. Really? Yes, really, says Ferris. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. You're listening to an encore presentation of the broadcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
We've got a guest named Ferris, after all. And he's from Chicago, so why haven't I played that music long ago for this guy? Anyway, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. After last month's warm-up in Texas, which ran its 2022 midterm primary on March 1, the earliest in the nation, the 2022 midterm season really kicks off in earnest next month, with primary elections in about a dozen states in May. Sorry to be the bearer of that bad news, but that seems our lot these days. But hey, democracy, we still have one, sort of. After tens of thousands of mail-in ballots were rejected last month in Texas under the state's new voter suppression law, ask me in a month or two if we still have one here at that point. But for this segment anyway, let's pretend that we do, because whatever happens this year, the results of this year's midterms are critical in a whole bunch of ways, both for democracy in this country and around the world, and for the fortunes, of course, of each of our two main political parties, which, frankly, is only of interest to me, because I believe one of the parties is now fully set on a path toward autocracy in America. And the other is currently our only hope for the survival of democracy itself and maybe even human civilization. You know, no biggie. Control of the U.S. Senate, for one, will be absolutely key to the survival of that democracy, as Republicans have now made it pretty clear that they will not only block any and all Supreme Court nominations ever made in the future by a Democratic president if they control the Senate, uh, but as one of our favorite uh, court journalists, Mark Joseph Stern, has emphasized, it's quite likely that a Republican-controlled Senate will not only block any and all nominations to the high court, but also to any and all empty seats on the federal judiciary period, including U.S. district and appellate courts. This is just one of the reasons the stakes are so high this year, in my opinion. My guest will likely have additional thoughts on that matter. The head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, Florida Senator Rick Scott, apparently without consulting with the real head of the Senate Republican Caucus, Mitch McConnell, recently released an 11-point plan described as the Rescue America platform, which would, get this, raise taxes on some 100 million low- and moderate-income Americans. It would also require that all federal laws be reauthorized by Congress every five years or they would expire. All federal laws. That apparently would include things like Social Security and Medicare, along with every other federal law. Seriously, that's his plan that he hopes Republicans will run on for the U.S. Senate. Mitch McConnell quickly dismissed Scott's plan, however, noting, quote, if we're fortunate enough to have the majority next year, I'll be the majority leader. I'll decide in consultation with my members what to put on the floor. And let me tell you what would not be a part of our agenda. We will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within five years. Of course, Mitch McConnell's leadership of that caucus is being challenged. 
McConnell has also recently warned about some of the, quote, unacceptable GOP candidates vying for nominations this year in the Senate that could spell trouble for Republicans hoping to regain the majority in that chamber, an year in which they are defending 21 seats while Democrats only have to hold on to 14. So there are some issues on the GOP side, despite the so-called conventional wisdom that Democrats with an unpopular president in the White House and nominal control of both chambers of Congress during a mid-year election are very possibly uh, due for a shellacking in November from an angry and or depressed electorate. But recent polling released by Navigator Research, a progressive polling firm, on Tuesday finds that Americans believe neither party is focused enough on the economy and that, as we have been warning about for months, most have not heard about recent record-breaking jobs numbers. For example, an unheard of more than 7 million new jobs created in the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. Or... GDP growth in this country that has not been seen since the 1960s. Nor have they heard about Biden and the Democrats' economic plans to expand Medicare for seniors to lower health care costs for, uh, by allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices and to invest in clean energy like wind and solar power. The fact that Americans don't know about that, well, I would blame both Democrats and the corporate media for those failures to educate the electorate, especially since among uh, those Americans who do hear about those plans, they are enormously popular, according to Navigator, with the support of 68 percent of Americans and the opposition of only about 23 percent. Even a plurality of Republicans support the Democratic economic plan. If Democrats can only figure out how to get it passed or at the very least, let Americans know about it. In the meantime, Rick Scott's economic plan to, you know, raise taxes on about 100 million working class Americans and requ require Congress to reauthorize all laws every five years. Well, that is deeply unpopular, has the support of only 27 percent of Americans and opposition of nearly 60 percent, including once again, a plurality of Republicans who oppose the plan of the guy heading the effort of on their behalf to take back majority control of the U.S. Senate this year. That said, how much voters actually vote based on things like economic plans, whether they know about them or not, well, that's up for debate in a year when the GOP is pretending that America's teachers are grooming children to be transsexual communist white people haters or something. So, yeah, I, you know, I take all all of the so-called conventional wisdom with more than a grain of salt this year. Your mileage may vary. So might my guests, who has argued two seemingly conflicting ideas in his two most recent columns at The Week, where he is a longtime contributor. His headline at the end of last month, quote, Democrats could still win in November. No, really which concludes that, quote, it is still possible to squint and see a winning environment for Democrats this November. And then there is his seemingly contradictory headline this week at The Week, quote, Countdown to Democrats Doomsday. 
Joining us now to square all of those circles, perhaps, is Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University in Chicago, David Ferris, who is also the author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. We'll see. David Ferris, it has been a redonkulously long time since you've been here, so welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thanks, Fred. It's great to be back on the show. <laughs> I, uh, I I could not decide which of those two pieces to start with, frankly. Uh, the more recent countdown to Democrats' doomsday or the slightly older Democrats could still win in November. No, really. But since I would hate for listeners to sort of, you know, start turning off the show with with the former, I want to begin with the more optimistic Democrats could still win in November. But first, since you're the political scientist, not me, is my characterization of the stakes of these midterms uh, that I just ran through and the, and the general state of play uh, close to how how you see it? Or am I missing or, or something or wrong on any particular part of that long description? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that the stakes of this, these midterm elections are extraordinarily high. And they're extraordinarily high because the Republican Party is uh, is like a proto-authoritarian cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> every time that they are up for power, it could be the last free election that we have, mm-hmm. uh, as, as we currently understand them. And as long as that iteration of the Republican Party is what it is, every single national election that we hold here in the United States will have extraordinarily high stakes. Um, because the Republicans are telling us exactly what they plan to do with their power. Um, They're telling us exactly how they plan to perpetrate uh, a a coup. And after the 2024 elections, if there's a close election that that Joe Biden appears to, or whoever it is, appears to have won, they are putting people in in power and in the relevant states to to carry out a more successful version of what they tried in 2020. So, yeah, the stakes are extremely high, not just for democracy, but for the the project of improving people's lives, which is Mm -hmm. supposed to be what politics is about. Um, not, uh, you know, creating a moral panic of the week about uh, child groomers or, or whatever. These guys yes. have really lost their mind. Well, yeah, and, and uh, you know, as you're, as you're uh, responding there, I'm thinking, yeah, when, you know, at the old saying, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. I think we should believe them. At the same time, you know, I find myself, uh, and I suspect you probably uh, find the same thing. You know, I'm highly critical of Democrats for a whole host of things. But when the stakes seem to very much be coming down to, you know, authoritarianism versus democracy, it is hard not to root for Democrats and the Democratic Party, no matter what I may think of their, you know, uh, their, their specific policy, their fears, uh, the way they carry out their business. It seems like a very stark but uh, simple choice to me, ultimately. It is. Yeah. And I mean, I think that I think that we would probably both agree so the Democratic Party is an, is an imperfect vehicle. Yes, to say <laughs> for the, the realization least. of our shared goal. Yeah, but, <laughs> but uh, they're better than the alternative. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Now uh, you got uh, a few ideas on how Democrats could still win in November. I want to sort of step through those, uh, sort of one at a time here, David. Uh, uh, and I think the sort of the easier ones, the simpler ones, are first. You call for the use of the Defense Production Act, the DPA, the Korean War era uh, law that uh, gives the the president some some pretty extraordinary powers in wartime. Uh, how, how so? How would you like to see him use the DPA, and how could that make a a difference to voters? In fact, this November, as you see it. Well, sure. I mean, I I think that um, part of Biden's problem, part of the Democrats' problem, 
is that despite the growing job numbers um, and, the, and the GDP growth, there, there are real problems in the economy that are, I think, being felt disproportionately by, by working people and, and people who are paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and those folks are experiencing that, you know, whatever it was, 8.5% year, mm-hmm. year-over-year inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a hardship to them. You know, um, groceries are more expensive. Cars are more expensive. Appliances are more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there are some commonalities in, in the things that have, have gotten more expensive. And the, and the president, I think, could use some of his extraordinary powers to at least communicate to the voters that he sees and understands these problems and he's doing something about them. Now, are we going to fix this, the semiconductor shortage between now and November? <laughs> no, right? But, but by signaling to the voters that he's willing to do something big and bold about it, mm-hmm. um, using his uh, immense executive powers, um, I, I think it will, it will do a lot to show the electorate that he understands their concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can still make the case for all, all of the good things that have happened, right? Mm-hmm. The, the tremendous uh, job growth that has, has gotten us very close to pre-pandemic employment levels. There's been rising wages. Uh, you know, the, the stock market has boomed under Biden. Remember, Trump mm-hmm. used to get up every day on Twitter and be like, new, new high on the stock market, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, I, you know, it's not the economy, but like, why not, right? Why not, why not brag about it? Yeah. And so um, I, I think that there's, um, I think that there's, things out there that could be done um, relatively easily with executive power, which Biden seems just so reluctant to use, hmm. um, that, that could at least change the perception of some of these economic problems. And that, that also involves the Fed raising interest rates, which um, is, you know, it's, it's not great for some people, but I think in, in a broader sense, you, you do have to get this inflation under control, um, or, or I think the, the dissatisfaction with the economy will grow. And, you know, right now, uh, we are the party in power. It, it seems you know, we don't have a working, functioning majority in the, in, in the Senate, right? But, but normal people don't know that. Right? Mm, right. They, they don't know that it, this is basically all Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's fault. Right. And they're, they're going to blame Biden for it. Right? Yep. And so yep. he, he really has to get ahead of that. But with these executive actions. Now, you also call on him to take on corporate price gouging and monopolies. I'm wondering how uh, could or should that be done any differently by, uh, by Joe Biden and the Democrats, differently from the way that they are doing so now, as you see it. Sure. I mean, I actually have heard some some good rhetoric from Biden recently um, about sort of you know corporate price gouging. Mm-hmm. In my mind, the best thing to do here would be <laughs> to convince Merrick Garland to to launch a high profile investigation of of you know what is effectively war profiteering mm-hmm. um, on on the part of the of the big oil and gas companies and um, the food producers, mm-hmm. the, you know the the people who are driving these increases. Uh, health insurance companies. I mean, they're all making record profits, right? It's it's not like they're suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're they're passing suffering onto us, despite making hand over money hand over fist right now. And so a little, you know, a little threat from the DOJ, um, a big speech about it, uh-huh. a big initiative to bring down prices. Again, some of it might be theater, right, in terms of his powers to address it. But um, but people like theater. Well, right? it, um, I mean, and, if, and they need to see it. Yeah. No. I mean, if if Donald Trump taught us anything. Yeah, people do like theater. They do like the performance. And, you know, there was uh, actually a pretty good performance on this very issue in Congress recently uh, where they you know, brought in some of the big oil CEOs who basically admitted, no, we're not going to increase production because we want to you know, increase value for our shareholders more than we want to worry about consumers. That was in Congress, and I'm glad they did that. Um, but I, I think there's really no comparing that to the bully pulp of the of the presidency making uh, such a speech like that yeah I, I agree and I think um, 
you know, I'm, you've, you've read about these uh, these producers, or producers who say, like, well, we don't want to ramp up production again because last time we did that, you know, then there was a bus and, and we were left holding the bag. And that, I, to me, that's an opportunity for Democrats to make the case to just nationalize this stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> like, like, we're one of the few countries that just, like, allows private companies to, to, to mess with our own oil um, supplies as they see fit. Uh-huh. And that leaves us with this one weapon, which is the strategic uh, petroleum reserve. Yeah. And it's not really adequate to, to bring prices down. Now, I know, like, sitting on the background of all this, right, it's like, we, you know, we don't want to burn all of these fossil fuels, <laughs> right? right? But we need bigger margins in Congress in order to really address that. Yeah. And we're not going to get those things if gas is $5 a gallon in November. So it's the kind of thing where you, you have to make this um, small moral <laughs> compromise in order to be able to stay in power and, and hopefully get things done by, by making Mansion and Cinema the you know, 53rd and 54th votes um, yeah. in, instead of the 49th and 50th. And that, that's really, really critical to achieving anything over the next four to six years. And you point out uh, on that note uh, to combat big oil profiteering that has raised gas prices, that uh, aggr- there should be aggressive subsidies of electric vehicles. But that's what the Build Back Better plan uh, hoped to do. How can any of that be done? I mean, can that be done in some fashion at the executive level? Because, you know, to do it with Congress, you know, among the other obstacles, uh, yes, as you mentioned, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema in the U.S. Senate, who, and Manchin, by the way, seems dead set on blocking anything climate related, no matter how much he continues to pretend otherwise. So I'm not entirely sure what, what Joe Biden could do there, even if he wanted to. Sure, no, this is, this is, a, this is a tough one, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how a big push for EVs could really alleviate some of this. But it, it is over time, and Manchin is a huge obstacle. I think, as we've watched Joe Manchin over the past year and a half or so, it has just become increasingly obvious that he is, in fact, just bought, right? Like, he has mm-hmm. been purchased yeah. by the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, literally, um, and, literally. And it, it, it's, I, it's, hard to see, it's hard to see this getting through if EVs are, are framed as a climate issue, right? Mm-hmm. If EVs are, are framed instead, and I, I, maybe, maybe he's open to reason. I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know the guy, right? But if you talk about electric vehicles not as a way to, you know, uh, to, to avoid climate change, but as a way to uh, put more money in, in the voters' pockets and, um, mm. and, and relieve some of their economic anxiety and, and, uh, and help Joe Manchin win another uh, Senate race in West Virginia in 2024, mm. I do think it's, some of it's about the packaging of this. Yeah. You know? and, and the reality is that right now these vehicles are, are just a little bit more expensive than, than gas-powered vehicles, and, and that, is, um, that is affecting their sales. And I, I think that that's, that's got to change at some point. And, uh, of course, uh, while electric vehicles do save people money after they own them, they are currently uh, obviously expensive. But, you know, I, I think we should learn something from uh, Newt Gingrich and his, you know, contract on America. A lot of the things that they promised while they were running and, and trying to take back a majority they never actually intended to deliver, or they actually never did uh, deliver. But uh, does it make a difference? You know, if the president were to go out and say, listen, give me a majority in the Senate that can uh, pass a bill to allow the old, you know, something like the wildly popular cash for clunkers, where I will help you buy, you know, I will give you, you know, the government will give you ten, twenty thousand dollars in exchange for your old car so you can buy an electric vehicle. Does running on those sorts of ideas uh, make a difference, even if it's something that they can't immediately put into practice? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is the this is the uh, that theatrical element of this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Democrats need a coherent 
platform in, in terms of like communicate to the voters what is it that you plan to do with your power. And I actually kind of think that Build Back Better, the ship has sailed on that in terms of a useful framing mm-hmm. of, of what Democrats want to do with the country, because I think most people would like to think, you know, we've, we've like pandemic is, is in receding in some, in some senses. Um, tell, framing it as Build Back Better is, is, is in year two of your presidency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Says to the voters that you haven't done it. Right. You know, right. um, we, we have not actually built back better. Right. So we, we need a new framework okay. um, for how to sell these policies um, to the voters. As a, as a way of uh, you know, making people's day-to-day lives um, easier, more productive, less stressful, and uh, and less fraught with uh, mm-hmm. with economic uncertainty and economic peril. That if you make one wrong move, you get one bad diagnosis, your life is over. Mm-hmm. You know that that's to mm-hmm. me is a signature problem economically with Amer- in American life. It's just the, it's just the precarity of all of it for mm-hmm. so many people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that you could sell some of these policies as as a way to address those problems. I think you have to be realistic about what you can and can't get through. These these two, you know, this is a family program, right? But um, mm-hmm. these two senators, yes, <laughs> in, Thank in, you. The, in the U.S. Senate, right? We have to be realistic. But I think I think they need to sit down with with those two and and pick a couple of big things, convince them that it's not going to contribute to inflation, and get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, you would deliver something to, to that appeals to the broader electorate, and you would deliver something that was promised to the base that hasn't been done yet. You know, maybe young voters. I mean, I think Biden really should be using executive power to do some student loan relief, mm-hmm. um, because the the, the fall off in the youth vote is is uh, is just potentially catastrophic here. I mean, it was the, it was the difference in the Virginia governor's race, mm. where in 2020, when Biden won by 10 points, you know, uh, 18 to 29 year olds were 20 percent of the electorate, mm-hmm. and uh, one year later they were 10 percent of the electorate, and you know, magically we lost. And if we see that kind of drop off from 2020 to 2022 among that age demographic, uh, yeah. it's, it's going to be hard to win anywhere. So you have to take care of all parts of your coalition. I, I know, again, it's not really Biden's fault that there's these roadblocks in, in the legislature, but that means he has to think creatively. Go read that big American prospect cover story from a couple of years ago um, when we thought we weren't going to get the Senate <laughs> mm-hmm. about what, what, what the day one agenda, right? Like, what, mm-hmm. can, what, yeah. what can Biden do through executive action? Right. Even knowing that some of it might get tied up in the courts, though, at least, it, at least we tried. Right, you know, um, exactly. It, it, and... It, it, and we would be talking about it and we would be talking about these policies because right now Republicans very much do not want to talk about uh, policies. And this is where uh, you write uh, next, you write, and which is I really think uh, here's the, the meat of the matter. You write uh, next. Democrats need this election to be fought on their terms. The party is on its heels in a relentless media fueled culture war whose parameters are defined entirely by the right. Critical race theory, cancel culture, masking in school battles, the last trans panic of the month. It's a Genuinely incoherent stew of festering grievances, but Democrats' defense has been just as messy. And I agree, of course, and I think those battles are unbelievably stupid. But uh, how, how do you see Democrats countering those idiotic but highly pervasive uh, messages that are being repeated over and over again by every Republican and on every inch of its considerably enormous uh, media machine? Sure. Well, first of all, get a DeLorean, go back in time, and create a Fox News for the left, okay? Yeah, <laughs> We okay. need our own network. That sounds good. Um, uh, we can't do that. So um, what we have to do is we have to go on the offensive on, on some of these things. We, mm-hmm. we have to identify the pieces of these culture war, I, I don't know what to call them, items, mm-hmm. you know, the panic of the day, mm-hmm. uh, most of which are really not popular at all. Yes, right. Like, right. I, like the, the public does not support 
silencing public school teachers. Right. People like teachers. Right. Um, the, the public does not support not teaching about slavery. The public does not support book banning and, and uh, these crazy things that are happening in Florida. Yes. You have to go on the offensive about that stuff. You've got to cut some ads mm-hmm. of just these people talking. Yep. Just cut a couple of ads of Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and Christy Neem saying things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, to get, to get the ad makers on it. You know, get the gray, you know, the black and white, the slow motion mm-hmm. footage. And what we have to do is we have to, we have to take what Republicans are doing in the red states. And we have to make sure that the voters understand that that is what is coming nationally if mm-hmm. we don't win these elections. Yeah. Right. Republicans want to make abortion illegal mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. Right? They want to control women's bodies. They're going to go after Griswold, too. They're mm-hmm. going to come after your, your birth control. Yep. Republicans are really, really good at identifying the craziest thing that anybody on the left in the whole country has said on any given day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then pinning that on the whole party. And, right? and, the, um, and the Democrats are really good at being afraid to go on the mm-hmm. offensive against that stuff. They don't seem to have any idea how to take it on. I mean, you mentioned these. Yes, banning books is not popular. Uh, you know, cutting an ad that said, you know who else banned books? You know, and you could <laughs> right. show the Nazis. I mean, it seems to me that this is an opportunity for the Democrats to to not, you know, be afraid, but to go on the uh, on the offensive, talking about a freedom agenda. I mean, can't they run on a freedom agenda to, you know, to to be able to read books, to not have your teachers arrested? Uh, you know, a constitutional First Amendment free speech agenda describing Republicans accurately as the enemies thereof? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, I mean, I, I put it in the article, the, the way to think about this is what's happening in Republican states is a, is a comprehensive assault on, on human liberty, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. these, these, these laws where you have people informing on one another and collecting mm-hmm. bounties for identifying people who've had abortions, like, I cut an ad with, with what they did in East Germany, with the Antistasi, have, have people turn against one another and turn mm-hmm. each other in. That's what this stuff is, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's authoritarian attempts to, to insinuate the Republican Party's priorities into our private lives, into our relationships with our fellow citizens, um, all in the service of creating this authoritarian dystopia where women uh, are deprived of their rights and uh, LGBTQ people are, are put back into their place where they were before Obergefell. Talk very publicly about what people on the right, uh, what conservative legal scholars, what people at Hillsdale College are saying about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was in, I was in class the other day with some of my students, these young people, you know, 18, 19 years old, and they just couldn't believe <laughs> that, that gay rights could be just kind of like wiped out with yep. a single court decision. Yeah. Right? I was like, yeah, this is all very tenuous, right? This is all very precarious. You have to identify the five most like hateful, unpopular things that Republicans are clearly and publicly planning to do and pin it on them and talk about it over and over and over again. P- put electric shock cables on on Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, if they ever say the words "Party of Lincoln" ever again, um, they get a, they get an electric shock. If they ever say "I miss Reagan," "I miss the old Republican Party," they get a shock. Those people are gone; they're dead, and they have been replaced by these by these illegitimate authoritarian cheaters um, who want to impose this like horrible dark vision on this country. What, what? Um, and I think every word that they say has to has to communicate to the voters that the Republicans are not acceptable people to run this country anymore. And, and and why do you think the Democrats have not done that already? Why are we talking about that on the radio? Why have they not gone on the offenses? This seems so obvious to me. What's the problem? What's the holdup? Are they still fighting for the imaginary middle instead of uh, broadening the base? The you know the the ones that brung them to the dance. Well, I mean, 
understand if I knew the answer to this question. I mean, I think part of the problem <laughs> is that the democratic political class is like 9,000 years old yeah. um, and, and, and largely grew up either in an environment where Democrats and Republicans cooperated to, you know, to keep um, apartheid in the South going, or yeah. um, they, they grew up in an era where, uh, where being on the left was you got punished in like three, three consecutive national elections mm-hmm. by Reagan and Bush, and everybody concluded that, uh, that all, you know, all truly progressive policies are, are political poison. I think that's the environment that they were marinated in, and, mm-hmm. and I think that they have taken too many cues from you know, the Abigail Spanberger wing of the party that's like, you know, tread lightly because we have all these swing districts, we might lose them. And it's like, look, uh, you know, at that, as a theory of the case, yeah, sure, it makes some sense, right? But like, look at the poll numbers. I mean, this has been the dream presidency of these people. We've gotten nothing done. Yeah. Right? We got into power and we messed with nothing. Right. Um, and we, here we are on the verge of, of losing both chambers of Congress quite decisively. And it's, it's time to try something out. Why don't we try doing things? You know, oh, why don't we try delivering on our promises? There's yeah, an idea. Uh, which actually you write about in It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And uh, then you follow up with The Kids Are All Left, how the young voters are going to unite America. Maybe someday. David Ferris, I've got just a a minute or two left here. I know it's completely unfair, but I'm sort of glad we're not spending too much time on it. Countdown to Democrats Doomsday. That is your most uh, recent piece, I believe, at the the week. Can you uh, summarize? I will, of course, link to it. But can you summarize the argument in a way that, uh, well, I don't know, that won't lead listeners to want to hurl themselves out of the nearest window? Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the problem we have a real problem, right? There's a there's a, a mismatch between the way people vote and and the and the way that those votes are translated into electoral outcomes. And in in the presidency and the Senate and the House, these things all disadvantage Democrats, and we're facing that same disadvantage this November. The scary thing is that the 2022 this year is probably the best Senate map that we're, we're going to see for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there are seats that we could flip in, in Wisconsin and yeah. North Carolina, yeah. um, and uh, we simply don't have those pickup opportunities in 2024. And if we go into November with the current political environment, I could see a world where we lose every single one of these competitive races, right? and Republicans walk away with 54 seats in 2022 mm-hmm. and uh, you can you can look at the map and you can see six pickups in 2024 that that would give them 60 votes filibuster proof majority um, there's this democratic analyst david hey, Phil, let me let me just wait let me just underscore that in by 2024 you could see a filibuster proof majority in the u.s senate yeah at the same time <laughs> that the republicans would also uh, in theory under that uh, theory control the uh the u.s house and in theory, the White House, uh, all three with a filibuster-proof majority in the U.S. Senate. Continue. Yeah, no, it's not great. Um, and yeah. so, <laughs> I'm sure you, you know this Democratic analyst, David Shore, his, mm-hmm. his whole popularism theory, which I, I don't like. But, but he's, you know, he's making these calculations like we could win more votes and still end up in this scenario, mm-hmm. right? Which, mm-hmm. is, which is an illustration of how much the playing field is tilted against Democrats in this country. Yep. And what it means, and we, we, you know, we're not going to get, you might as well take its time to fight dirty and put it in the fiction section right now, okay? Because that stuff's not happening. And that means that we, not through this Congress, that means that we've got to go out once again this November, fight on an unfair, un- unfair playing field with our, with our own senators working against us, and somehow magically gain seats, right? I still think that that's possible. Yes. Right? But like, what we have to communicate to the voters is that if we do not do that, if we walk into November with a, with a national political environment that's like plus six for the Republicans, mm-hmm. 
we could get clobbered in a way that would that would put power out of reach for us for for six to eight years. Yeah. Um, at least at least having a trifecta, right? right. You, you could see Biden winning again, but not getting the Senate in twenty twenty four, and it's like you might as well not even bother. So. Well, um, and I should I should know when when you say we, uh, I know you identify as as a Democrat, uh, and and uh, and and I don't. But when I talk about we, I'm talking about uh, Democrat, small D Democrats, about you know mm-hmm. democracy itself. As I started this segment, that is very much as I see it. What is what is on the table, and I just want to remind everyone about that. I think that's why these elections this year are that important. David, last question here, and and it's sort of feeds into all of this. You know, I have real questions. You mentioned uh, that uh, you think it's possible that Democrats could actually pick up seats in the Senate. So do I. I have real questions about so-called conventional wisdom in these unconventional times. You know, it was conventional wisdom that Donald Trump could never win the presidency in 2016, and and things have just gone farther off the rails since then. Conventional wisdom, you know, we should also see a rally around the flag effect for Joe Biden's poll numbers during a time of war, particularly when his policies on that war are wildly popular. And aside from inflation, the economy is clocking, you know, sort of record numbers uh, in nothing less than a Biden boom in many ways, but none of that has seemed to change his polling numbers if those can be trusted. So I have real questions about conventional wisdom these days. Uh, what would you advise voters regarding conventional wisdom? We're going to hear it a lot between now and November. What would you rega- uh, advise voters uh, regarding conventional wisdom in a year like this at times like these? Well, I just say, you know, tune, tune it out. I mean, tune it out and do the work. And, and that means, for, particularly for a lot of progressives, like, you know, like myself, that means doing the work even though you're really, really frustrated mm-hmm. <laughs> with your own party. And so we, we have to convince people that the alternative is so, is so horrendous and so heinous that they have to kind of, they have to redouble their efforts. And, and to be honest, the Republicans, and, and particularly the Supreme Court, might do some of this work for mm-hmm. us. And it, it's going to be a very, very dark day in, in the United States when I, I think that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade sometime this summer. Um, and that is a terrible tragedy that will impact the lives of, of many millions of women. Um, and it's just the first step, and I think a, a path to, to gender tyranny and gender apartheid. It's just, a, it's just a dark vision that they have for this country. But I do think that it could, it could scramble the whole political landscape in this country in ways that we simply cannot anticipate right now. It is still a long time to the election. A lot of things could happen. You know, uh, Russia could pull out of Ukraine and get the inflation down a bit, and the job numbers keep booming. And, and Republicans and the Republican Supreme Court does this incredible advertising job um, for us by, um, by showing us what they plan to do, right? Okay, abortion is now illegal in 20 states. You know, do you want it to be all 50? Go ahead, vote for these people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I still think it's, there, there are Senate races that are very much in reach in Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin in particular. Mm-hmm. We really only need two pickups to, to really change the landscape. If we can defend Georgia, if we can defend... Um, Arizona, New Hampshire, and pick up just those two seats. Yep, we could really, really get some things done um, under the Biden presidency. Because, and so it's it's t- you know it's yeah. time for us to to, to unify, um, stop stop pointing fingers at one another, pointing at the Republicans, and let's go out and win this thing, man. When pick up two more seats, and uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema don't actually matter anymore. Right. David Ferris, uh, contributor at the week, associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty 
uh, how Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics, and the kids are all left, how young voters will unite America. Pretty please? You can find David on the Twitters at David M. Ferris and, of course, his work uh, at TheWeek.com. David, always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to the next time. All right. Thanks, Brad. Great to be on the show again. All right. Take care. Thank you, brother. Okay. Uh, and I am serious about that conventional wisdom. Yes. BS. Just tune it out, man. Just get tune it out and get to work, like he said. There you go. Quick break. And we are back to work with uh, some listener mail right after this on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. We'll be back soon. You may be right. I may be crazy. Yeah, I may be. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, conventional wisdom also says that people are tired of hearing all the talk about Donald Trump and I guess even about accountability for him and his cronies. Well, that is uh, not true either. At least if my email to bradcast at bradblog.com after Monday's show discussing those very things is any indication. <laughs> yeah. John Nichols of The Nation was my guest that day, and for some reason or another, I got a lot of folks who wanted to ring in on that show regarding the need for accountability for Donald Trump and his crime family and on the call to impeach the wildly corrupt far-right activist U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Not sure why, but... Folks seem to really like that show, Desi Doyen. I know. It's so interesting. And and or uh, they disagree with some of the points discussed. Suzanne D. writes, Dear Brad, hope this finds you well, coping and at your snarky and passionate best today. Just wanted you to know that today's show was great. I believe that my dad is up in heaven working to make sure Trump faces justice. This last year has made me question everything. But the one thing I have seen in my life is that karma comes around. It's the timing. Let's hope it's perfect. Well, thank you, Suzanne. And keep hoping. I will I will join you. KCP also enjoyed the show, though is less optimistic about how things are going. Hey, you were smoking today, he writes, but I'm pretty discouraged. I've watched the same thing happen with the last three Democratic administrations. Big idealistic plans stalled, diminished, shot down by Republicans who don't want to do anything when they're in office and won't let the Democrats do anything when they're not. So I've backed away, writes Casey, but you put some fight back in me today. Oh, good. Yeah. You can't get rid of a rotten situation by closing your eyes, he writes. Mm. It'll still be there when you open them again. More importantly, you can't stop fighting. And I don't think you and Des will, he says. I'm sure that I'm not the only one inspired by what I heard today. He says, keep going, you two. You're dragging a lot of us behind <laughs> you. I know, and it's it's getting exhausting, Casey, but thank you for that note. Uh, we need everybody on board, no matter how exhausting it gets, if, if we're going to save this republic right now, along with democracy and, oh, yeah, human civilization itself. Yeah, no, I think, no wonder uh, we're exhausted all the time. I know. I think it was Churchill, didn't he say, when you're going through hell, keep going? 
Uh, did he? I think he did. Somebody well, did. That's what it feels like. I don't know who said it. But anyway, uh, Fred G. writes, have the elected Democrats figured out that immediate, visible, serious public hearings for the Trumpsters are the only way to stave off a November catastrophe? It's only the fate of the planet that hangs in the balance. Well, I don't know if they have figured that out, Fred, or that even that would save them this November. But the January 6th committee has been promising quite a big primetime show with their own public hearings for some time. Uh, first, they said spring, now summer. So we'll we'll see what happens and when and what effect, if any, it will have on November uh, which, as I've noted, I am not ready to dismiss just yet. If you haven't noticed, yes, conventional wisdom be damned. Deepak writes, Yo, Brother B, <laughs> calling for the impeachment of Clarence Thomas will only create more anger and division that already besets this great country. I'm not sure that's possible at this point, Brother D. And by the way, if we avoid stuff that is morally and legally and constitutionally correct just to avoid anger and division that we already have, well, we would end up pretty much exactly where we are right now after decades of doing just that. Anyway, Deepak continues, why not advocate and push for 18-year appointments to the Supreme Court? You will get more support from both D's and R's. Also, you will get a more diverse and fairer court. Thank you so much for your show. Bless you. Uh, well, I don't disagree with that suggestion at all, Deepak. Uh, but I don't think it's an either-or question, in my opinion. But thanks and bless you in return, my brother. Anyway, that's just a sample of some of the notes I received after the show. But thank you all for your thoughts. I read them all. I reply to many, either uh, via email or when time here on the air. Keep them coming. You can always reach me via bradcast at bradblog.com. Well said, all. Uh, let's see. Got to get out. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. My guest today, David Ferris of Roosevelt University. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible only by those of you who are kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You know the email address to reach me at, bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.